but we are in the book of James. Uh, we've titled this series, The Grind of the Grace. Uh, James has been coming hard at us. Um, he, he's not holding back any punches. He's telling it as it is. Uh, he is telling the church, that's us, that's me and you, for those who have crossed the line of faith, uh, that our faith requires works. Our faith requires works. All right, and so if you have a Bible or electronic device, uh, we'll be reading from James chapter 4, verse 13. It's a few verses. Uh, it'll be up on the screen as well. Uh, what I'll do is I'll read it, uh, and then I'll pray. Pray for us. Uh, as I pray for you, I ask that you pray for me, uh, that God would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine right here this very morning. James chapter 4, from verse 13. Hear these words of our Father. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a vapor, or you are like vapor that appears for a little while then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine. We truly do ask for that. We're pleading uh, that your Holy Spirit would move in this place, uh, that it would soften hearts, uh, that it would open them up so that we might receive from you. God, we want to experience you uh, for all that you are, that you are seated on your throne fully in control. Uh, but at the same time, you are close enough, uh, close enough to identify with our needs uh, and our desires and our struggles and the things that we wrestle over. And so God, I'm, I'm asking for you to do that this morning, um, to interact with our lives, and, uh, that we might seek to glorify you, seek to know you, uh, because only in you do we find joy and joy to the full. And so with that, Lord, I pray against the evil one whose desires are to steal that joy from us. Um, I pray against his temptations, Lord, um, over and in our lives. God, I ask that you would stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. God, you are our king. You are our redeemer. Would you have your way in this place? In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. If I was to title this message this morning, I would say it this way. Uh, Paul today wants to talk to us, or rather he wants to caution us against a life that is independent from him. He wants to caution us from a life that is independent from God. All right, independent from God. But before we jump in, there are a few things we need to understand and to be clear about regarding God. What we need to be clear about is that God is a God of omnis. God is a God of omnis. God is a God of omnipotence. He's a God of omnipotence, which means that he's all-powerful. Plainly put, God has supreme power. This means God can do whatever he wants. It means he is not subject to physical limitations like we are. Being omnip omnipotent God has power over wind, water, gravity, physics, etc., etc., etc. God's power can be described as infinite or limitless. 
The second omni is that God is a God of omnipresence, which means that he is all present. This term means that God is capable of being everywhere at the same time. It means his divine presence encompasses the whole universe. There is no location where he does not inhabit. He is everywhere at once. And then this last one, uh, the pronunciation trips me up every now and then. And so depending on where you went to school will determine how you pronounce it. But here is how I say it. God is a God of omniscience. All right, we'll go with that one. God is a God of omniscience, which means that he is all-knowing. God is all-knowing. He knows everything about the past and the present and the future. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing. His knowledge is total. He knows everything. Everything that is to be known, he knows. And so God is a God of omnis. It's important for us to understand that because where we're going, we need to be clear about those things. We need to be clear about those things. So now James, here in these few verses, will challenge us. He'll challenge us, our thoughts and our beliefs on God being all-knowing and all-powerful. God being all-knowing and all-powerful. And it's, we're going to wrestle with this a little bit. Because you'll see in a moment, it, because God is all-knowing and all-powerful, and when we don't believe this, our lives just go in the opposite direction. Our lives will go in the opposite direction if we don't live in light of this, that God is all-knowing and all-powerful, meaning that we are not. But James says it this way in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. This is, this is the things that we say all the time. Tomorrow I've got these plans. Next year, this is what I want to do. I want to start a business. I want to make some money. I want to start a family. We'll see in a moment, those things aren't inherently bad. But when we don't understand who God is and who we are, we'll find ourselves in the wrong place. And so James rebukes the kind of heart that lives and makes its plans apart from a constant awareness of the sovereignty of God. That's what he's rebuking. The reality is that we are not all powerful. We are not all knowing. Look in verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. You do not know. We can make plans, but the reality is we don't know. I mean, just thinking about this Sunday, I, I, I'll finish up here. We'll hang out a little bit together. And then my plans are to get in my car, to drive home, to spend some time with uh, another couple, some friends of ours. My wife and I will do that, maybe over lunch. And then they'll leave and then we'll hang out a little bit, have dinner, put the kids to bed. We'll chat a little bit and then we'll go to bed. That's the plan. But the reality is I don't know. I don't know what will happen on the way from here to my house. I don't. I don't know if that couple will show up. Who knows what will happen tonight? 
And so James is saying, be careful. Be careful. We are not all knowing. But then also, we're not all powerful. I love the illustration that he uses here. He says, for you are like vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. You're like vapor. James borrows this concept from the Psalms where King David sang, my days are like an evening shadow. The shadow is there, but in a minute, its shade fades away, and it is swallowed up before one's eye by the night and is gone forever. In the same psalm, Psalm 102, he says this, For my days vanish like smoke. Like smoke. We see it, it's here for a moment, and then it's gone. In another place, David says, You have made my days a mere hand breath. Here one imagines David holding his hand up before the people as he sings, pointing the the short journey across his palm. And then, of course, many of us might know the famous, as for man, his days are like grass. Psalm 103, verse 15. It sprouts, greens, withers, and then is gone. That's what James means when he says that we are like vapor. We appear for a little while, then we vanish. See, James asks us to consider the fragility of human life and the fact that we live and move only at the permission of God, who is all-knowing and all-powerful. That's the beautiful thing about God, is that not only does He create everything that we see, but He sustains it. The fact that your heart beats this very moment is because God sustains it. So James wants us to be clear about that. We are not all knowing and we are not all powerful. Have no idea what's happening in a few moments. Tomorrow, next week, next year. And not just my own life, but guys, just look at the economy. Or the political climate that we find ourselves in. We can plan, but we have no idea how it's going to unravel. We also don't possess the power that God possesses. We can do some pretty cool things, but we are not all powerful. Now, it's important to note that James isn't discouraging us from planning or doing. Some of you might hear this and go, okay, cool, so am I not supposed to plan or am I not supposed to put anything into action? Paul's not, James is not discouraging us from that. In fact, much of Proverbs instructs us to plan. In fact, to be efficient in our planning. Go read the book of Proverbs. What James is warning us against is planning and doing apart from the reliance on God. The reliance on God. The reliance on God. This is something that we struggle with. All of us especially if and when we begin to make something of ourselves. Accolades, promotions, titles, achievements, developments, and when we start making a little cash money, we begin to depend on ourselves. 
we start to believe the lie that no, we are all-knowing and we are all-powerful. We quickly forget who we are and we begin to live in a reality where we have an inflated view of who we truly are, especially when it comes to God. And so permit me to give us a little bit more, a little bit more perspective on who we are in relation to God. Some of you might know this illustration. It's called the, the dot on the string. And for this, I'm going to need two folks to come and help me. Uh, Bear, since you're on this side, could you grab this piece of string and then just kind of stand over there? Cool. You can stop. Great. Uh, Aquila, since you're on the other end, do you mind coming to grab this? And then just kind of walk it to the other end. Thank you. Just keep going. Don't stop. Oh, watch it. What, what? No, no, no. No, for real. What? Yeah. Cool. This line illustrates eternity. This is God. So imagine that this piece of string continues way past where bears are standing. God is eternal. And then imagine that it continues way past where Aquila is. This is God. God is eternal. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And at some point, the the Trinity are hanging out together, having incredible fellowship with one another, and then go, you know what, this is so good, we should create. We should create. Out Out of the joy that we are experiencing in this community, we should create. And so we have creation. Let's start it here. Can you all see that? Well, you can, right? Great. That's what matters. I don't care about you. No, no, I do. <laughs> so we have creation. It's a, it's a dot on the line of eternity. Now, now, look, creation is amazing and it's huge. But in light of eternity, I think it warrants a little dot. In fact, maybe some of you guys feel like, no, it needs a little bit more. I'll, I'll make it a, a bigger line. There we go. That's creation. Adam and Eve, everything that we see and experience. And then on here we'll have, you know, Abraham shows up. He does some pretty cool things. Ruth shows up, and that's pretty amazing. Jeremiah, and on and on and on. And so maybe we are here. Here we are. Somewhere here. Where's OG? OG. Here you are, buddy. <laughs> if God would grant you 80 years, that's your 80, because you, know, you do CrossFit, <laughs> you'll live to 100. So there we go. That's you. 100 years. 100 years is a long time. But in light of eternity, you're just a dot. You're just a dot. And for some strange reason, we we think of ourselves more than that when you're thinking a hundred years. But when you think eternity, we are only but a dot 
That's your life. Somewhere on here, there's a dot that you, you can maybe see. But that's you. Anyone feeling insignificant? Yeah? I sure do. I feel so insignificant. Like, all I am is a dot. A dot on the line. That, that's it. Wow. Do I carry any value? Am I worth anything? Before you go down that road, permit me to say this to you. Yes, you matter. You do have value. You are worthy. You are significant. Well, how do you know that? I'm glad you asked. We just have to look to the cross to see that. You may be just a dot on the line in, in light of eternity, but, but you're a dot that matters. You're a dot that matters, and so you are significant because Jesus died for you. You're important to God because he sent his son Jesus to die for you so that you might be reconciled back to him. And so it might feel like a, like a paradox, I believe that's what they call it. On the one end, we're, we're, not, we're, we're insignificant. We're only a dot on the line in light of e- eternity. But on the other side, no, we matter. We matter. This is important for us to understand. Thanks, guys. Y'all can sit down. Whoever wants to keep the string. Now you can, you can have it. In the Father's eyes, we matter. When we see ourselves the way God sees us, we matter. But when we forget that, when we forget the cross, and all we think about and all we see is ourselves, we enter into dangerous places. Because it's in those moments that we forget that we are only but a dot on the line. That's what James is saying here. He's trying to make the point that, listen, when you forget, when you forget that you are to be reliant completely, wholly on God, he says, check yourself. Check yourself. You're only but a dot. Or a quoted C.S. Lewis we're in the same WhatsApp group, buddy. And so I'll quote him to you as well. C.S. Lewis says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. See, you think of yourself less so that you might think more of God and His kingdom. But the crazy thing about this is when you do this, you see your value, your worth, your unshakable identity wrapped in the beauty and the majesty of God because you're focusing on the cross. You're not focusing just on yourself. You are significant. I said it before and I'll say it again. God sent His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you so that you might become the righteousness of God and be reconciled to the Father. You matter. He then seals you with the Holy Spirit, meaning there is no return clause. God God doesn't go, He doesn't pick you up and go, "Mm, it's broken, I don't want it, send it back. For those who've crossed the line of faith, you're sealed, sealed by the Holy Spirit. You matter. You 
matter because of the cross. God loves you more than you could ever imagine with all your faults and your recurring sins. But you've got to see yourself rightly. You've got to understand who you are. And that happens when you understand who He is. James, having shown the foolishness in us of declaring what we're going to do tomorrow or next year without reference to God's will, James gives us a godly alternative. He gives us a godly alternative. And so he he first kind of lays the foundation and says, listen, guys, be careful. I mean, he's borrowing language from last week, what we saw in the previous verses just be careful. Be careful that you, you don't think of yourself as this incredible, amazing person when in reality you're just a dot on the line, but a dot that matters. And so think about this correctly. That's what James is saying. He, he makes us aware of our foolishness. We are not all knowing and we are not all powerful. But then he says, okay, hold on. Now that you understand that, here's the godly alternative. Verse 15, instead you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. Now interestingly, the expression, if the Lord wills, appears nowhere in the Old Testament. Though it is used several times in the New Testament. Paul promised the Ephesians, I will come back to you if God wills. To the Corinthians, he said, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. Similar expressions are also found in Romans chapter 1 verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 7, and Philippians chapter 2 verse 19 to 24, where, where he lays out these plans and then he says, if the Lord wills. Because I am not all-knowing and all-powerful, if the Lord wills. Now having said that, There are places where Paul talks confidently about his plans without using this phrase, if God wills. There are many other places where he doesn't say that. And so it left me slightly confused. Because I was like, well then what am I going to say to you guys on Sunday? Like, Which way do we go? What should we say? Here's my answer. I don't know. To be honest, I think it's entirely up to you. Now, I will say this. I think it's a good thing to say, but but I'm not going to add to the ongoing debate because I know there's different camps on this. Some say you should all the time, and some are like, no, don't do it. I don't want to add to the ongoing debate. I think it's a good thing. But what I will say, what I believe James is saying, is he's calling us to have the right mindset and heart which is dependent on God. And that is more important than trying to find a statement to say. James wants us to have the right mindset and the right heart which is dependent on God. It's more important than trying to find the right wording. I believe that's what James is advocating for. He's not saying that we need to come up with a cheesy Christian cliche. You guys know we don't need any more Christian cliches. 
James, I believe, would rather have the posture of our hearts loudly cry out, if the Lord wills, indicating a true dependence on God. He wants our hearts to be right. And so therefore, the soundtrack of our hearts on repeat as we conduct the affairs of our lives should be, if the Lord wills. You can add whatever beat you want to it. If you're more into hip-hop, then do that. If you love the classical, then do that. But, but on repeat, the soundtrack of our lives should be, if the Lord wills. This must be loud and on repeat when we make our plans, all our plans. The choice of a life partner, future education, where to live, where to work, should we go camping? Oh, God, I, I did try. I did try. I think I know the will. I know God's will on that one. Uh, for my life, it's definitely no. But for some of you, if you should go camping, if, if the Lord wills. How long to stay in a particular area? When and if to start a family? How much to invest? Everything, everything, everything should, should have, if the Lord wills, connected to it. Because it communicates your dependence on God. All of us should have this heart attitude. Otherwise, you will be deeply disappointed. You will be deeply disappointed when you realize you are not all-knowing and all-powerful. You come up with all these plans and these ideas. And then we put them in motion as if we are all-knowing and all-powerful. Or maybe, maybe this is what some of us do is we, we write up all these great plans, pages and pages and pages of them, and then we show up to God and we're like, can you just sign on the dotted line? Here are my choices, God. I just need you to sign on the dotted line. God doesn't operate that way. He doesn't function that way. We should come to him with everything. And go, Lord, I, I have these desires, but, but it's your will. It's not my own that's important. It's your kingdom that should come, not my own. The throne only has one individual who sits on it. It isn't me. And it isn't you. It is the one who is all-knowing, all-powerful. And all present. James then goes back to what he said earlier. He says, if we know this and if we believe this, then we should stop boasting. If this is true, then we have nothing to boast in. Nothing. Because we recognize that everything that we have comes from God. We have great plans and great ambitions. That's phenomenal. But who gave you those great plans and ambitions? We have nothing to boast in. He says it in verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's evil. Why is it evil? Well, it's because what you're trying to do is sit on the throne. And you can't. You can't. 
And only when we recognize that, we then begin to live in light of all that God has for us. Stop your boasting. Remember, you're just a dot on the line. Let that become a thing for you. Any time you feel like it's, it's, it's coming up again, just remember, I'm, my 80 years here, if the Lord gives me 80, in light of eternity, man, I, I really have nothing to boast in but the cross and only the cross. Because in the cross, I, I see who I am, value, my identity is in Christ. Then James, he wraps up this chapter by challenging us to live according to what we do know. So if we are not all knowing, if there, if there are things that we don't know, James says, well, no, hold on. Yes, there's tons of things we don't know. But they are things that are given to us. They are things that we do know, and so we should live according to those. Live according to those. Verse 17, he says, So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. The NIV says it this way, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. James challenges us not to surrender to the sin of omission. It is sin to know what is right and to fail to do it. See, so often we can focus on the things that we shouldn't be doing, and, and we should. We should focus on those things, but we forget the things that we should be doing. And so your life simply becomes the, 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 the rhythm of, man, I shouldn't be doing that, I shouldn't be doing that, I shouldn't be doing that. Forgetting that God has given to us clearly in His Word the things that we should be doing. So go do them. Because if you don't, James says that that's a sin. That's a sin. These sins of omission are just as offensive to God as the sins of commission. How crazy is that? How crazy is that? That the, the, the things that I do that I know I shouldn't be doing are offensive to God in the same way that the things that I know I should be doing and I don't do. A sin of omission is a blatant act against God's will. We know to make our plans in reliance of God's will. So when we fail to follow this knowledge, we commit a sin of omission. God holds us accountable for more than merely knowing the right. He wants us to do the right. It's not just about knowing. We need to have that information make its way to our hearts. And as it transforms our hearts, it, it becomes the things that we do. So it's not just about knowing these things, it's about doing them. God wants us to avoid acts of disobedience to His will. He also wants us to avoid the failure to live up to the truth He has given us. As Christians, we must plan our lives in full commitment to the will and plans of God that are found in the Scriptures. We must avoid omitting from our lives important disciplines that God has given us. 
call them disciplines because we need to be disciplined in order to do them. And he's laid them out in his word. The things that we are to do. Uh, let, me, let me list a few. In no particular order, let me list a few things that I, I believe many of us in this room know we should be doing. Loving our neighbor. Loving our neighbor. Now, now I know for many of us the question might be, well, who's our neighbor? They ask Jesus that same question. And he goes on to tell them, well, literally it's everyone. It's everyone. You love everyone. It's this idea of, of, of reaching out. It's this idea of including people in the rhythms of your life. And even though some of us get this, I feel like we have it backwards. See, for us, when we, when we talk about loving people, it's them coming to us. It's them integrating with our lives. Then I will love them. Loving your neighbor means you reach out, you go out to them. And not like a short-term mission trip. And I love mission trips. But we need to stop treating people like short-term mission trips. Loving your neighbor means connecting deeply with where they are. Going to them. It might mean moving into their neighborhood. It requires sacrifice from you. If you're still struggling with it, you just look to Jesus as not only our example, but the very power that enables us to do that. Jesus loved his neighbor. He moved in. He lived among us. He sacrificed for his neighbor. These are things that we know we ought to do, but we don't. I'll give you another one. Giving generously. Oh, some of y'all are super nervous. Like, oh, I knew it. This is the Sunday. I shouldn't have come. They've done the presentation on money. Now he's going to talk about money. Guys, as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about money. Now, now I know many of us have been in places where, where we've been taken advantage of. I know that. That's sin. But it doesn't mean that we don't talk about it. We are called to give generously. And some of us, we get stuck on the 10%. Oh, 10%. My friend Joey says it this way. He goes, listen, 10% was an Old Testament thing, and, and we're called to do it, you know, because all of God's word is true. But there's a reason that it's not mentioned in the New. In the New, it says we are to give generously, sacrificially, willingly. And so my, my boy Joey says 10% is like, is like giving 101 and if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for more than five, ten years, and you're still on the ten percent, we need to have a conversation. You should be asking yourself, how do I give sacrificially, generously, and I want to do so willingly? Why? Because the gospel has transformed my life. It's transformed my life. And here at Rooted, we would never ask of you something that God has not already asked of you in His Word. This giving thing is not an invention that we came up with because it's like, man, we need to pay the bills. It is a commandment that has been given to us and is found in God's Word. So what are we to do as Christians? 
do it. Because if you don't, you are in sin. Prayer. You know, I'm just going to read them because I don't have time. Bible reading. Helping the needy. Sharing our faith. Making disciples. Can I say this? That, that so many of us, we treat the Great Commission like the Great Suggestion. Because I've got all these plans that I've got to do, you know. I've got to, achievements that I've got to get. Accolades that I need to build. And so, Lord, if I have time, then I'll make disciples. God, can I, can I, can I make disciples five years from now? Because I'm super busy. I've got this thing that I need to do. So I'll make disciples five years from now. Where do we see that in Scripture? The call is if you are a Christian, if you have crossed the line of faith, go and make disciples. And what we'll do, and again, I'm not throwing any punches. I am guilty of this as well. What we'll do is we'll, we'll lower the standard because we're like, man, this is really difficult. So let me bring the standard down high enough that I can get over it, but then those around me can't. And so making disciples is uh, at work on Wednesday, I asked my colleague if he goes to church. He said, no, I think I made a disciple. James says that there is a lot of good that we have been given. We must do it. Taking care of the orphans, loving the widows, visiting the sick. The list goes on and on and on, and it would take us forever just to go into all of them and go into detail. But let me ask you this. How many of you hearing that list are able to look back on just this week and go, there was good that I needed to do and I didn't do it? And my hand is not... It's not an illustration like this is, I'm putting my hand up. Like I, I read that list and I'm just like, wow. Just this past week, I go, wow. And if I was really honest, I would just say just typing out this list in preparation for this Sunday, just typing it out crushed me. It crushed me. Because I looked at it and I was like, oh, I thought I was amazing because uh, there are all these things that I shouldn't be doing and, I, and I, will, I didn't do them. I didn't do them. But then I look at this list of the things that God is clear on that, hey, this is what you ought to do if you are a Christian. And I go, wow. Thanks, James. I mean, I started asking myself, am I fit to even preach this? Who am I to fall short on all these things? Am I even fit to preach this? Am I, am I fit to even lead you or to lead this church plant when I fall short of so many things that I know are good and therefore just don't do them? But before we throw James away, 
Because we've got one more chapter. And I know some of you are like, I just can't wait to get out of James. Before we throw James away, I, I want to encourage you to, to fight your heart. Fight your heart and, and to fight that thought that goes, you know what, I just can't. This is impossible. Man, what is the next series? What on earth is happening? But bef- before you do that, I want to ask you to see the book of James as an act of grace from God. To see the book of James as an act of grace from God. James reminds us that we are not as amazing as we think. That we fall short over and over and over and over again. James reminds us that we are not perfect. And so why? Why should we see this as an act of grace? Because it should compel us to run to and cling to the one who is perfect. Instead of sitting there in guilt and shame, it should remind us that, now hold on, I may be just a dot on the line. And gosh, I fall short of all these things that God has called me to. But let me run to the one who is perfect. Let me hold on to him. Let me trust in him. Because upon reflection of James' words, I, and I'm personalize this, I realized that James isn't trying to crush me. He isn't. He isn't trying to crush me. But rather, he deeply desires for me to be humble before a mighty God. Why? So that I might be exalted. As his grace is poured over me, I might be exalted. So that I might see who I truly am. A child of God. God loves me more than I could ever imagine. That it's not about what I've done or or what I continue to do. But it's about what He has done. Jesus Christ on the cross. And so because of that, it, it compels me to not only love Him, but love those around me. In my imperfection. David Brooks He's a writer of the New York Times in the U.S. Um, in one of his books, writes this about humility. Now, I don't, I don't think David Brooks is a believer uh, or a believer in Jesus, but he's onto something. He's onto something. He, he says this, humility is not thinking lowly of yourself, but accurately about yourself. It's an adequate view of your own nature and a realization that you are not equipped to perform the tasks God has asked you to perform. I'll give that to you again. Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself, but accurately about yourself. It's an adequate view of your own nature and a realization that you are not equipped to perform the tasks God has asked you to perform. On my own, I can't. I can't do it. My strength is not enough. My intellect is not enough. My resources are not enough. And so I run to the one who has everything, who is all-knowing and all-powerful. I submit to him and allow his grace to channel through me so that I might do the good work that he's called me to. So friends, these words shouldn't crush us. It should cause us to lean more deeply and intimately into God through Christ 
by the power of His Holy Spirit. That's what it should do. There's lots of work to be done. That's what the book of James is about. The grind of the grace. There's lots of work to be done. James is saying to us that this faith, this faith that you and I have, causes us to grind. However, we grind by and because of the power of the grace. So James' final words here in chapter 4 is to say, guys, we are called to do many great things. I hope that they would say of us, whenever that next dot is, after we've all along have gone to be with Christ, that they would say of us that, listen, this was a community that gave graciously, sacrificially, willingly, that this was a community that served deeply, deeply. This was a community that loved their neighbor. This was a community that prayed, expecting God to do great things. This was a community who clings to the very word of God as their everything. This was a community that loved the orphans. This was a community that cared for the widows. This was a community that that really wanted to live as a transcultural community. This was a community that said, it's not just about us. We're always asking the question, how can can God, how can you multiply this, not only in this city, but beyond? That we want to see more communities of faith who are gospel-centered, disciple-making, and transcultural. I hope that that's what they would say of us. And if they do, it won't be because we were amazing, because we had enough strength, because our intellect was on point. They will say that because we were deeply connected to the grace of God. That we humbled ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And in doing so, he was able to move in and through us. It's about his will being done, not our own. It's about his kingdom coming, not our own. And so we humble ourselves. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Let's pray. And so God, we we want to be these humble people. We want our lives to be drenched in humility. We want to be those who submit to you. The one who is seated on the throne, who is all-knowing and all-powerful. Because when we do that, I truly believe that, I truly believe that, that when we do that, the 80, the 90, the 100 years that you give us here on this earth will matter. It'll matter. That God, we would be able to leave a legacy that matters, that is focused on you, on your kingdom, your glory, your goodness and your grace. And so God, I'm asking now that even in this moment that we would pause and reflect and allow the eyes of our heart to look to you and see the wondrous cross. The cross that allowed us to be reconciled to you to no longer be orphans, but to be children. 
and then to be reconciled to one another that we might be a true community that loves one another. It's because of this wondrous cross. Our lives matter because of the wondrous cross. And so, Lord, may our hearts sing that. We want to praise you. We need you. Humble us under your mighty hand. In Jesus' name we pray.